بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم بعد. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing our exploration of Muhammad Zubair Siddiqui's book, Hadith Literature, we are now doing on page 58, um, item 4.3D, like David, the Sahih of Muslim. So the Sahih of Imam Muslim was composed at the same time that Sahih or that Al Bukhari was uh, compiling his Sahih. So um, very little is known about Muslim. His name is Muslim. Yeah, his name is Muslim. Yeah. Okay, so very little known is is known about Muslim's life. He was born in two o two after Hijra. So roughly, when is that? Eight seventeen. He uh, he he excelled in the usual disciplines that Hadith scholars are very good at, like everything. <laughs> <laughs> and he did that at a young age. And then he started focusing on Hadith when he was a little older. So he traveled widely to study Hadith. Uh, he went to Persia, Iraq, Syria, and Egypt. Where, I don't I don't I didn't know where he was from though. Did I? Uh, let's. See. He's probably from Central Asia. Most of these people are from Central Asia. Uh, what does it say? So, Qushayri, uh, uh, yeah, it looks like the, the family was traveling. Mm. So, uh, he attended lectures of the great Hadith scholars of his time, including Ishaq ibn Rahawi, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Ubaidullah al-Kuwaiti, yeah. Shuwey ibn Yunus, Abdullah ibn Mustama, yeah. and let's see, yeah, Hamala ibn Yahya. Yeah. So he settled down at Nisabur, which is in Persia. Mashallah. And he he had a small business, and besides that, he devoted the rest of his time to the service of the Sunnah, which I guess would be studying and compiling hadith. Um, here. Could be it could mean compiling hadith. It could also mean just trying to live the sunnah. Oh. Okay. okay. And then he died in the year two sixty one or eight seventy four. Yeah. It's also interesting, you know. Um, always keep in mind how these people are keeping food on the table. So sometimes you'll have someone who's coming from a family of wealth. Sometimes you'll have someone who's on the government payroll, right? Who's receiving patronage from the government. Sometimes you have someone who is receiving support through an endowment, a waqf. But a lot of times they just uh, they have a small business or they have very, very little. Many of our biggest scholars in history were, were servants professionally. And, and, and so they had almost no income. They had very minim minimal uh, sustenance and they dedicated themselves to study. He was known to have very good character and was honest and had loyalty to the truth, or like was very loyal or upright about, and yeah, he cared a lot about being truthful. So he's associated a lot with Bukhari despite, um, I was confused by this, despite political pressures against him. So a lot of people started turning away from, turning against Bukhari, right? Oh. Uh, but he remained uh, associated with Imam al-Bukhari. Why did they turn away? Uh, I don't know about the political side of it, but a lot of people felt that Imam al-Bukhari was doing an innovation by, by compiling hadith. This is something new. Or compiling hadith in the way he was doing it. Uh, 
is that innovation? Because that's not how we used to do knowledge. But that's not the definition of bid'a. But it can be. Bid'a though is when you change from the like you when you when you distort the religion. Yeah, correct. But this is not distorting the religion. This is studying it. This is without him, we wouldn't have so much. I mean, but that's we have the 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 privilege of being a thousand years later, to say you know look at the benefit that he's brought, right? Uh, but one of the things he's doing is that he's shifting from an oral tradition to a written tradition, from a living tradition to a written tradition. And, and so that's literally changing the whole method of study. And now we can look back and say, well, that was, it was a good thing he did that, otherwise he might have lost all this stuff. I remember in an earlier chapter, we talked about how the Prophet originally said, don't write down the Qur'an, or was it the Hadith? Hadith. And then he changed that and encouraged people to write it down. Mm -hmm. So it shows that having a written tradition is fine. Well, I mean, but then what it means is that you're not living it. It just sits on a bookshelf. Okay, even if it's oral, you don't necessarily live it. Because I could preach it all day, but that doesn't necessarily... That is is very true, but it's much harder. It'll be much harder to sustain or or remember if you're not preaching it. I mean, I'm saying it'll be much harder to sustain if you're not living it. If you're just preaching it, then chances are after a while you're going to forget it. If you're just preaching it, you're going to forget it? Probably, yeah. Okay. He also never spoke ill of anyone, so I guess he never... He says it's an Islamic ethic, so no backbiting or slander. And let's see. He wrote a good number of books and treatises? Treatises. Treatises on hadith and related subjects. So I have a question. Did any of these scholars write poetry or fiction on the side? Um, probably not fiction as much, because fiction is a, a newer form. I mean, oral fiction, which is usually in poetry form, has been around for, for thousands of years. But prose fiction uh, has probably only been around for about 500 years. And poetry, um, a lot of these people have written poetry. Uh, I don't know about Imam al-Bukhari, or I'm forgetting right now. But a, a person who's often quoted for his poetry is Imam Shafi. He's written a lot of poetry. That's interesting. Uh, okay, so in his Sahih, he examined a third of a million hadith and selected about 4,000 of them to have in his compilation. Uh-huh. And traditionists unanimously regarded them all as sound, which is kind of crazy because they didn't all agree on Bukhari's tradition. Uh-huh. But is that still the case today? Do we still think that or were there further research done or something? That so so think of it uh, as, as Imam Muslim taking a different approach. He's looking at the ones that everyone agrees are sound. Right? So everyone already agrees. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, but I thought... Wait, what do you mean he only looked at the ones that people agreed? Because he had a methodology yeah. to determining whether or not it was Sahih. <laughs> yeah, he does have his own methodology, meaning his collection is more than 4,000 narrations. Mm-hmm. But he has 4,000 narrations that everyone agrees upon uh, are, are sound. Yeah. Okay. So, similar to Bihari, he had his own, like we said, method. So, first of all, the, to, for him to regard a hadith as true, it had to be handed to him through a continuous isnad or chain of known and reliable authorities. 
Second of all, it had to be compatible with other material that was established in the same way. So if he found a hadith with a, with a good isnad, but it contradicted another hadith with a good isnad, then I guess he wouldn't, I guess he would reject the newer one, not the newer one, but the one that was less famous. Um, uh, repeat that point. So if he found a hadith with a good and reliable isnad, but the content contradicted another hadith that had a good isnad, which one would he take? Uh, he would take both. Yeah. But it says he would only take a hadith if it was compatible with other material established in this way. Okay, so they, uh, uh, it doesn't mean the content of the hadith. He's talking about the, the, the chain, right? Because uh, he does have narrations uh, where one narration will say one thing, and the narration right after that will say something completely different. And so they're not necessarily contradictions as much as they are different answers to the same question. Um, but uh, meaning, I'll put it like this. If you just remove, put them in a vacuum, they look like contradictions. Um, but if you put them in context, they're not contradictions. So the answer for, for Chanan would be X. The answer for Omar would be Y to the same question. And then the Hadith had to be free from deficiency. Yeah. So he also had a threefold classification method. So, uh, in one section, he would have hadith that was related by narrators who were straightforward and steadfast in their narrations and didn't differ much from other reliable narrators and didn't have anything confusing in them. So, just really straightforward hadith with really straightforward isnads. The second category. He would have narrators that were not distinguished for, for retentive memory and steadfastness in narration. And then in the third, it would be hadith that were narrated by those with questionable reliability. So the first category makes up the bulk of the sahih, so most of it is, from, is you know, really reliable snad. And then it's the second, the second category um, is kind of like a sub, not a subsection, but it's it's definitely a lot smaller than the first. And then the third with questionable reliability is rejected altogether. But I'm guessing that he put it in there just to show that, you know, this is rejected. Mm-hmm. As sahih. Mm-hmm. Anything else? No. That's it? Okay, very good. So that completes up to, through page 60, and next time, inshallah, we'll get into the Sunan works like the Sunan of Abu Dawood and such. Right, subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa tubi ilayku wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.